Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. We recognize the Second Solano War was a war of Indian removal ignited by Indian resistance to U.S. government efforts to deport them from Florida to Indian Territory west of the Mississippi River. A key sticking point in resolving the conflict was the disposition of the Indian slaves, known then as Indian or Seminole Negroes or Black Seminoles. And at the center of that was the delicate business of defining just who the Black Seminole were. The translator, diplomat, and strategist Abraham was a leader among Black Seminole and a representative among the Seminole of their interests. One can use the structure of a classic internet meme to illustrate the difficulty in defining who were Black Seminole, such as Abraham and his people. For instance, who did the Seminole say they were? The Seminole said Abraham and his people were property, not to be given up without financial compensation, and they were worth fighting to keep. They did concede, however, that the Black Seminole were key, if subservient, partners to their cause. Who did the Americans say they were? To the Americans in Georgia and other southern states, Abraham's people were a threat to national security. They were poised to pour across the border under cover of darkness or to filter up through the swamps to pillage at will. Who did the Spaniards, who ruled Florida in the early 1800s, say they were? The Spaniards said they were potential citizens and able allies who were worth arming and supporting for their value in protecting St. Augustine's back door. Who did the Black Seminoles say they were? Abraham, his people, and hundreds of others like them were freedom seekers who fled slavery of the American South and deliberately forged symbiotic alliances with the more numerous and established Seminole Indians. Who can we say the Black Seminoles were? Returning to the Seminole Wars podcast to help with answering that question is Dr. Brent Wiseman. Dr. Wiseman has podcasted with us earlier to discuss the continued historical and cultural importance of the Seminole in Florida. He's Professor Emeritus of Anthropology at the University of South Florida. He has served as the editor of the Florida Anthropologist, president of the Seminole Wars Historic Foundation, and the Alliance of Whedon Island Archaeological Research and Education. He was a founding director of the Florida Public Archaeology Network. His research interests continue to be Seminole Indian culture and history, Florida archaeology, and North American Indians. Dr. Brent Wiseman, welcome back to the Seminole Wars. Thank you, Patrick, and thank you for inviting me back. I am enjoying these conversations and I'm glad to share what I know. Brent, what makes the case of the Black Seminoles in Florida an especially hard one to explain? We want to be sympathetic to the Native peoples who were pushed around, kicked around, beat up, attacked, driven from their homeland, oppressed, and we want to put our sympathies with them and sort of hit them against the American oppressors who were driving these forces. So it becomes hard to understand why the Native peoples took on some of the same characteristics that have become such a negative stain on American history, specifically slavery, slavery of African ancestral peoples, black Americans. 
I think this is one of the more enduring, persistent, and unanswered questions in historical research is how and why this happened. And there are excellent scholarly monographs and, and journal articles out there about the blacks and the Seminoles, some excellent references, which I'll give you later on. And most of the existing documentation, I think, has surfaced. There were government documents uh, talking about this. But the biggest unanswered question is why. That's where we have to be a little creative, I think, in trying to figure that out. Why it was that the Seminole Indians adopted the American and European views of property ownership that included human beings. It's inescapable that the black Seminoles were considered by the Seminole Indians to be slaves, to be property. They were considered by the white American society, by the government, by the military, by every level of citizen, resident, local, state governments to be the property of the Seminole Indians. That they were, that these human beings, these black people, were considered to be property and capable of being bought and sold by the Seminoles is hard for us to sort of reconcile with our more noble images of what the Seminoles themselves were fighting against and trying to secure, which was their own freedom to live in their homeland, the lives and the life ways that they had become accustomed to traditionally. Where do we look for answers? People are, are looking around and not coming up with anything solid. It's one of the, as I said, one of the great missing pieces. It might be that the Seminoles, at least an upper stratum of Seminoles, wanted to be accepted by and equal to what they viewed as the dominant white society in the South. Now remember that the Seminole Indians were living in Florida. They were Southern Indians. All around them were slave-owning white masters. Uh, they were the ones that were calling the shots for the economy. They were the ones that were buying and selling and participating in the in the same economy the Seminoles were participating in. It's possible that the Seminoles, the ones that were slaveholders, wanted to emulate and be accepted by that datum of white society without also giving up their identity as Indians. And we have to also remember that or look at the fact that when we when we look at the ownership of blacks by the Seminoles, it was a minority of the Seminoles that owned the black Seminoles just as it was the minority of white people in the South at this time owned slaves. So that same sort of stratified society may have existed with the Seminoles too, where a few of them owned, owned slaves and many or most of them did not. But when we look at the rosters, the lists of by name, name by name by name of the black Seminoles that were deported with the Seminoles to Indian Territory, we see that for the most part, there were six or seven main owners that were owning multiple 15, 20, 30, 40, 70 uh, of the uh, black Seminoles. So it was, I think, a minority ownership and uh, not widespread, but still very, very important. Where the black Seminoles came from, where they were, in some cases, escaped slaves from the southern plantations. This was happening early in the 1800s. It was one of the reasons that Andrew Jackson invaded Spanish Florida was to break against and perhaps capture some of these escaped slaves from the plantations who were beginning to nucleate themselves in certain areas in Florida. The white owners wanted them back. The white owners also feared an uprising uh, against them organized in Spanish Florida coming back across the 
the border and attacking, threatening the, their lives. So there was fear, there was the desire to regain lost property. The, the blacks that were fleeing the plantations coming into Spanish Florida sought refuge amongst the Seminoles, and the Seminoles were then viewed as their owners by they, the Seminoles themselves viewed the black Seminoles as property. The outside world viewed them as property. In some cases, the Seminoles bought slaves from other Indians, like the Creek Indians, or even from white residents of the South, actually purchased them, so they became their property. Uh, sometimes they captured during their raids on the Florida plantation. Sometimes they captured black slaves and took them back with them. Sometimes the blacks just continued to seek them out. Sometimes they were free black. Blacks that had been freed in Spanish Florida legally by Spain that were trying to get away from the slave catchers coming down from Georgia and Alabama and the Carolinas who sought refuge amongst the Seminoles. And so all these people were mixing together. Some of them were legally owned by the Seminoles because owning other human beings was legal in those days. Some of them were just sought the uh, accommodation from the Seminoles, and this all be became a huge jumbled mess in the Second Seminole War when the goal of the Army then was to capture and deport the Seminoles. The government had long recognized that this issue of black Seminoles or the slave property was going to be a huge, hard-to-resolve problem in the Indian removal. They realized, and General Jessup quickly realized, the complexity of the issue in terms of which of the black Seminoles did the Seminoles legally own by purchase or by acquiring uh, from creeks or other in other ways of the black Seminole? What did they acquire by the escaped black or property of others coming to them seeking refuge? How many of the, of the black Seminoles actually were technically freed and were not property even though they were associating with the Seminoles? They had to untangle all these things the white owners who had lost their slaves were filing claims against the government to recover their property. The Seminoles were not going to leave Florida unless this had been resolved, and if they were to lose their property, they, they wanted to be compensated for it. All these things became a huge fireball about ready to explode and was one of the main factors igniting the Second Seminole War. Back to your original question about the condition of slavery, what makes the issue even more difficult to understand is that this was its own unique kind of slavery. Even though the Seminoles viewed the black Seminoles as property, they didn't lord over them like the typical white southern plantation owner or small farmer that might own a few slaves. They didn't control their labor, they didn't whip or beat them, they didn't subjugate them to inhumane treatment. The black Seminoles for the most part lived quite apart from the Seminoles in their own villages. In their own towns, they had their own social life, their own ceremonial life. We know very little about their, their political life, but they had their own organization. And so even though they were viewed by the Seminoles as their property, they were not on a daily basis controlled by them. It looks like in many cases what they provided to the Seminoles was kind of a tithe 
like uh, a certain percentage, certain amount, or a certain volume of crop annually paid to the Seminoles in exchange for the protection by the Seminoles of the blacks from being captured. To a slave catcher coming down into Florida, it didn't matter to them whose property this was. A black person looked like a black person. They were going to catch whoever they could. If they couldn't return them, they would sell them themselves. All blacks in Florida in the early decades of the 1800s were in danger, no matter what their legal status was. The Seminoles were looked upon by these people as protectors. In exchange, they got some share of crops, and uh, and that looks like it about it. They didn't labor for the Seminoles. They didn't go and perform tasks. They didn't do daily or household chores like you like you think of uh, in the sort of the, the typical view of southern plantation life. So this was a, a unique kind of slavery that did depend on the Seminoles adopting or accepting this view of the legal property ownership of human beings, but it was much more egalitarian, you might say, than the typical southern view. And in the early years, it appears not to have been racially based, although this is very, very difficult to, to discern. When you look at the documents pertaining to the white plantation south, or the white version of slavery in the south, in the early 1800s, leading up to the Civil War, 1820s to 1850s. It's inescapable that slavery and racism were tied together, whether one was justification for the other, but the black people were viewed as being incapable of civilization, incapable of higher order of thought, uh, incapable of fending for themselves, and deserving of a position lower than whites, uh, perhaps deserving only to be taken care of by whites, but by no means they're equal. That is inescapable in any sober reading of the documents. We have no discernible, solid evidence that the Seminoles themselves felt that way. So it's perhaps that they had adopted this view of human beings as property that could be bought and sold without a racial connotation or a racist view of where the black people belonged relative to themselves. I don't know that. I haven't seen anything that sort of conclusively leads me to an interpretation of that. And that's where we are. When Jackson came down, uh, he encountered black settlements throughout uh, northern Florida in the what's now the Tallahassee area. When he attacked Bowlegs Town on the Suwannee River, he had to first go through a town of Bowleg Black who fought against him, and the Black Seminoles would take up arms, as you know from Second Seminole War history. They were warriors, they were fighters, they fought against the military, oftentimes in separate units attached to the Seminoles, not integrated within the Seminole bands themselves. So they did have a, a military stake in this conflict, but they also, I think, were beneath it all, looking out for their own, how they could best accomplish their own freedom. They were freedom seekers. When they were captured, when they turned themselves in, they used their knowledge of Seminole lifeways, where the Seminoles lived, how they lived, where they were, how many of them they were, their knowledge of Seminole language. Many of them were fluent in the two Seminole languages as well as English, and sometimes Spanish. So they were multilingual. They used all these talents to get themselves the best opportunity the best deal they could with the white american government the white american military so that they could obtain their freedom now that freedom wouldn't technically come until the end of the civil war with the emancipation 
some of them left Florida willingly, thinking that they were being granted their freedom in Indian territory. This became a very contentious issue once they got out there. Their ownership was in dispute. Seminoles thought they owned them. Some of the Creek Indians who, who still had claims on the uh, black Seminoles thought they rightfully, legally owned them, and they would attack or threaten to attack the black settlements in Indian territory. This was a huge, huge mess. And again, one of the most problematic and lesser-known episodes of 19th century American history, this whole relationship between black people in the South and the American Indians, and what happened to them when they get deported to Indian territory, and conflicts between the various tribes in Indian territory about these people, Cherokees, Creeks, and Seminoles, who owned them and how they were going to get them. It doesn't take long to get into the government documents to realize what a thorn this was and how hard it was for the military and the government administrators to, to solve it. It was mostly a case of, let's just close our eyes and hope it passes on to the next generation of politicians or generals to solve as it moved out to Oklahoma or Indian Territory, I should say, it was sort of out of sight, out of mind. It became a problem that was further away from the center of American government, more remote and easier to push aside. How does the human story of Zephaniah Kingsley illustrate the complexities of the Black Seminole? Kingsley, of course, was a plantation owner near modern-day Jacksonville uh, on the Atlantic coast. He was not typical but he did exemplify some of these conflicting pulses of American history personified in one individual, where he maintained slaves, he owned slaves, and yet he had relations with slaves, he had offspring with slaves, he freed slaves, he gave them property. Uh, Daniel Schaefer, the historian, has done lots of work on Kingsley, uh, very interesting studies of him and his attitudes. A slaveholder a slave owner, and yet somebody very beneficent to slaves, to black people in his ownership, letting them free, giving them property, helping them set up their own plantations without his control. A complex person, far more than we can discuss here in our short time, but I would direct anybody interested to uh, the work of the historian Daniel Schaefer. Black Seminoles and Seminoles brought their distinctive historical and cultural traditions to the relationship. What does the archaeological record show about whether Black Seminoles were distinct in identity and practices from the Indian Seminoles? Of course, my main interest is as an archaeologist. The history of American slavery has been very, very well researched, very deeply researched by very competent scholars. There are libraries show with yards and yards and yards of books by very credible scholars on the history of American slavery. And far less on the relationship between American Indians and black slavery, and a minuscule amount on what archaeology can contribute to this whole discussion. So whatever I am able to contribute in terms of original research would be as an archaeologist, not as a historian. My concern has been in finding black seminal sites, sites that it were black seminals were documented to live. First step, trying to preserve these sites so they weren't destroyed, what was left of them. Second step, doing enough archaeology to begin to answer some questions like the one you just posed. My biggest question is, what can the archaeological record, what can what was left in the ground, what was left behind, physical traces of their daily lives, what can those artifacts tell us about the interactions between the Black Seminoles and the Seminole Indians? That's an ongoing project that I probably will be working on, struggling with the rest of my thinking career. 
And I've even gone to Oklahoma now to try to find post-deportation black seminal sites to compare them to what we know in Florida. And uh, again, these, this kind of research takes a long time. It can be very frustrating. It doesn't pay off in big aha, gee whiz kinds of enlightenment moments, eureka moments. It's a slow building of evidence. And what makes it even more difficult is I've come to realize that just as Seminole Indian society was stratified into different classes, there was the slave-owning class, and there were middle class and perhaps even lower class Seminoles who didn't own slaves. The, the archaeological sites associated with those different classes are going to be different. The only one that we have adequate knowledge of in Florida at the present time is the site of Palaklakaha, which is east of Bushnell near the small intersection of Center Hill. Palaklakaha is well known to Seminole War historian as the major home site, the prominent black Seminole Abraham, who was owned by Micanopy and was freed by Micanopy. Uh, Abraham had a major part in the Second Seminole War. Lakakaha is the best-known black seminal archaeological site. Bill, uh, Bill or Willard Steele and I discovered the archaeological component of the site some years ago, and uh, it's been and it was it was archaeologically investigated by Terence Wyke for his doctoral dissertation at the University of Florida. I took Terry to the site and helped him set up the research there. So there have been excavations at the site, legitimate standard professional quality excavations. What it looks like to me, looking at the evidence, is that the black Seminoles at Palaklakaha, which was probably an upper class black Seminole site, were living much the same way that the Seminoles were living. They were getting many of the same kinds of trade goods, the English-made pottery, the glass beads, the silver ornaments, um, uh, they were getting many of these same kind of glass bottles, many of the same kind of things that you expect at the Seminole Indian sites. So it's a little bit anomalous. They were either making or using Seminole Indian pottery, the clay earthenware pottery that's distinctive for Seminole use, which was these vases or bowls made out of clay that have a very distinctive brushed outer surface. Finding these potsherds, these broken up pieces of pottery at Palaklakaha, they look exactly like Seminole Indian pottery that you would find at any Seminole Indian site from the 1820s through the 1830s. So how did the Seminole Indian pottery get there at a black Seminole site? Seminole Indian pottery made by Seminole Indian women. So either Seminole Indian women were present at Palaklakaha, perhaps as marriage partners to the black Seminoles. Highly controversial to say that, but it's possible. Perhaps the pottery and what contained it was traded in, obtained by the black Seminoles from the Seminole Indians. Perhaps the black Seminole Indian women were making that pottery identical to what they saw the Seminole Indians making. We can't answer those questions but it does open up some areas for research. What it looks like to me is that the black Seminoles were participating in the very same economy that the Seminole Indians were participating in, but of course they weren't doing it directly. The black Seminoles were not going to St. Augustine with their trade goods and bartering or selling it on the market in St. Augustine. The black Seminoles were not hosting white traders who were coming in to swap or buy 
venison and deer skins and, and melons and honey and the things that Seminole Indians were trading to white traders for. They were not doing that directly. So all these things that we find in Palakwakaha were being obtained by the black Seminoles through their interactions with the Seminoles. So there was some fluidity there. There was some regular means of exchange. How what the factors were in that exchange are still unknown. And the other things we need to find out are what do some of the other black Seminole sites look like that were perhaps not as prominent or as uh, in that same class as Black Lakaha. We've discovered a few other ones, and work may take place there in the future. For now, I'm happy that they're just being protected and not being disturbed. And these other sites may reveal other kinds of life at Black Seminole sites that were perhaps not as prosperous as at Black Lakaha. One of these sites that I'm talking about was even maybe occupied by the same people that lived at Palakwakaha, but was their refuge or their escape hatch uh, during the war period when they left Palakwakaha and went to hide out in the swamps. The interesting thing about the site of Palakwakaha is it was very carefully chosen, very carefully selected by the black Seminoles who lived there. These were the legal property of Micanopy, the residents of Palakwakaha. Micanopy at the time lived some miles further to the east, a town called Okahumka, miles away, so he didn't exert direct daily coercion over the people living at, at Lakwakaha. But the site was very carefully selected. It sits on a little plateau, a little summit, a little ridge, surrounded by open pastures, open fields, open wetlands, where cattle could graze, where rice could be grown. And just to the north of the town, a little creek went by. It's called Jumper Creek today. Jumper Creek drains into the Withlacoochee River through Jumper Creek Swamp. person living in Palakwakaha could get in a dugout canoe out the back door, basically, in Jumper Creek, could paddle downstream into the Jumper Creek Swamp, into the Withlacoochee River, unseen, and resettle at a place that uh, Henry Prince called Foggy Island, what's today called Kettle Island on the map, and hide out there during times when the Lakwakaha was expecting to be attacked. Uh, during the several times when the army actually did overrun, overtake Lakwakaha and burn it to the ground, they never encountered the black criminal residents. They had escaped. We found that site and several others, and maybe one day those will be investigated as well. We'll have a fuller picture of Black Seminole archaeology. I'm continuing to investigate the sites in Oklahoma, and we'll find out one day what those, what the material record, what the archaeological record there looks like, and eventually build a big comparative picture of Black Seminole life based on the archaeological record. And at that point, we can answer some of these questions. What do you mean when you say that to be a black Seminole meant living in multiple worlds simultaneously and that the central features of black Seminole life were both ambiguity and insecurity? Always insecure because the threat of being captured by slave catchers. Insecure in the sense that uh, they knew they were property and could be sold. Uh, insecure in the sense that they knew that the various treaties between the U.S. government and the Seminole Indians involved the transfer or the severance of the black Seminoles, the transfer of them back to perhaps their previous owners. So they were always insecure about, about their 
status, which again is why I think at, at their core they were freedom-seeking people who, even though they had loyalties to the Seminoles, obviously fighting side by side during the Seminole Wars, ultimately they were looking out for themselves. So that insecurity there. Ambiguity in the sense that they didn't really belong to Seminole society. They weren't part of the clan system. They weren't part of the green corn dance. They weren't integrated into the Seminole kinship system. They lived apart from them. They weren't Seminole Indians. Who were they? They left their previous owners, their previous homes in, on plantations. In some cases, they were several generations away from being African. In some cases, they were not. But So they were a mixture of first-generation Africans, several generations ago Africans. Uh, people that had lived in several places in the American South, people that may have lived in Spanish Florida, the people that had several owners, people that had been perhaps freed and had a freed status, all coming together. So what was their identity? What, was, what provided their cohesion? How many African beliefs and rituals, ceremonies, core religious beliefs did they continue with? Did they develop their own language? These are all unknowns that scholars continue to try to contribute to, in some cases fight about, argue about, many, many unknowns, many more unknowns than there are known. So ambiguity was at the core of their life. Insecurity was at the core of their life. They, they simply wanted a place to call their own and a freedom to be their own people. We see this playing out very clearly in Indian territory when Wildcat, or Kawakachi as he was known, is deported to Indian Territory and decides out there in the 1840s to go to Mexico, to, to live a life in Mexico free from the intervention of the American government, free from the politics of Indian Territory that put him and his people uh, constantly at risk in conflict with the Creeks, with the American military there. And Kawakachi forms a very strong bond with a black Seminole who is known as Kawaya or Gopher John. Gopher John is probably the second most prominent black Seminole along with Abraham who had a long and important history in Florida in the Second Seminole War. But he ends up in Indian Territory. He ends up bonding very strongly with Kawakachi and together they lead their people to Mexico. Gopher John, Kawaya leading black Seminoles along with Kawakachi's Seminole Indians on a nine-month-long expedition taking them from uh, Indian Territory, which is now Oklahoma, across Texas and into Mexico, being pursued by slave catchers, in some cases being helped by the U.S. military, in some cases being hindered by the U.S. military, and being, by the way, chased by the Texas Rangers, whose history is not nearly as glorious as we have been led to expect by the glorification for, from Hollywood and TV. Their motivation to get to Mexico, to get to freedom, to have their status clarified, to be freed once and for all by the Mexicans so that they can enjoy a secure and free life in Mexico. That's a whole nother story, but one, again, that doesn't receive, I think, the attention that it could, that it deserves in the saga of free civil war American history. Discuss what you meant by the black Seminoles acting as agents of information on the margins of contact. They were conduits of information both ways. They gave information to the military and to the government authorities. They were multilingual. They did have full access to to Seminole society. They were interpreters for the Seminoles. Uh, Abraham 
knew very well Seminole Indians and how Seminole society worked. So they were able to provide information to the military and the government. And likewise, they were able to provide information to the Seminoles about the military movements, about who the leaders were, what the change in leadership was during the war period, who the government authorities were that were important. They were back and forth. As I said, they were conduits of information moving back and forth. They spoke the languages. They had access to the information. They put themselves in a position where their knowledge would be would be considered important. And therefore, again, they were trying to establish their own importance and significance uh, with the ultimate goal of obtaining their own freedom. I do want to point the interested listener to some resources to some reference books to get more information on this whole topic. The first one is called Africans and Seminoles by Daniel Littlefield, a very, very good reference. It primarily focuses on the Indian Territory conflicts, but does begin with the Black Seminole story in Florida. The second one is called The Black Seminole by Kenneth W. Porter published by the University of Press, an edited volume, and Kenneth Porter is probably the predominant, preeminent scholar of black Seminole history. He was a historian that took this upon himself as his primary field of research, published many articles over the years, beginning in the 1930s in various journals, and is cited often by other scholars who are looking for their own research uh, on on this topic. So these two books will be very good starting places and will lead the interested reader into other references. I've also published a piece that just came out this year in a book called The Many Faces of Slavery, edited by Lawrence Ahe and uh, Catherine Armstrong. Is published by Bloomsbury Academic Press in London. It resulted from a session held in London a number of years ago where I was one of the plenary speakers there. My chapter there is called Something Close to Freedom, The Case of Black Seminoles in Florida. And much of what I've talked about here is presented in that chapter. So those are some resources that I think will guide the reader deeper into this history. And deeper is where you need to go if you want to hope to gain any kind of understanding. Uh, Thank you, Patrick. I've enjoyed our talk, and I hope uh, your listeners will have gained something out of this as well. Dr. Brink Weissman, thank you so much for joining us again for the Seven Awards. Uh, You're welcome, Patrick. I've enjoyed it. Till next time. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden. Roast em, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.